Well, good morning. I'm, I'm 50% of the pastoral staff at All Saints, uh, more or less. Uh, and uh, Brad is, is on, a, on a little bit of a quarantine since he took his daughters to college. And, and uh, we look forward to Brad coming back next week, uh, me especially. Um, but today we come to the end of the book of Ezra. And then Brad will start next week with Nehemiah. And I'll let you know in advance right now a little, um, a little warning maybe. And this is a bittersweet, hard, long passage. Uh, we initially, Brad had initially uh, given me uh, 9 and 10, and I decided that may be just a little bit more than Phil can, can do in one day. Um, but it deals with sin, and, and we just experienced a really joyful time, a happy time in the life of the church by welcoming new members into the body. But one of the things that we shared with these new members was the importance that we put on the Word of God. And it's something that differentiates and distinguishes us from some other churches that frankly have taken God out of the equation through his word in many ways. Um, But we believe that the whole word of God, all 66 books, are inspired. As Paul wrote in 2 Timothy, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable. It means it's really worthwhile for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, and righteousness. So as we study God's word today, we can't avoid dealing with the topic of sin. After all, it's mentioned about 1,700 times in the Bible. So understanding sin is basic to understanding God and the nature of God, because without the presence of sin, there would be no need for the gospel. But where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Amen? Please join me to pray as we open God's word today. Lord, our God, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you especially for this particular chapter we're about to read. We pray that we might always have hearts that approach your word, seeing it as the infallible, inerrant word of God, and profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction, instruction in the way of righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Come, O Lord, grant your blessing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in your bulletin, uh, we started with verse 3 of chapter 9 of Ezra, and I'm going to start with chapter 1 just to give the backdrop here. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And this faithlessness, the hand by the officials and chief men, has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, this is verse 3, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread up my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and am blushed to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we've been in great guilt. 
And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God might brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we've forsaken your commandments which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you're entering to take possession of is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their sons for your sons. I mean, neither take their daughters for your sons, sorry. And never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our dog, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant? nor any? Do you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant? Sorry. Nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. This is the word of God. Well, last week Jeff presented Zion, Jerusalem, a shining city on a hill, as indeed it was under Kings David and Solomon. The action today takes place in Jerusalem also, but the city isn't shining very brightly. It was spiritually quite dark. Let's revisit the setting and the context and get up to speed. These events took place in about December, mid-December perhaps, of 458 B.C., the seventh year of the reign of King Artaxerxes I of Persia. Jerusalem is in about the same latitude as Dallas, Texas, for all you Texans out there. Um, So it was cold and rainy, wet. But God had moved in the heart of Artaxerxes to send Ezra back to Jerusalem to teach the people there the word of God. He set up judges and magistrates to govern by that law. So Artaxerxes wanted order and he wanted the word of God taught and proclaimed in Jerusalem. Interesting, isn't it? Ezra was a Levite, a priest, and a scribe. He was a man of letters, well-written, 
who had set his heart to study the law of God and to do it and to teach God's statutes and rules in the land. Ezra was a great man, one of the all-time heroes of the faith. I thought about that this week. We don't have a lot of Ezra's in our church, but it's a good name for a boy. He had the will to lead. He had a heart for holiness, and he had a mind for biblical truth. And he made quite an impression on Artaxerxes. I was thinking about this this week. Because Artaxerxes was a very, very powerful man. Maybe one of the most powerful men in all of human history. He ruled the Persian Empire, which defeated the Babylonian Empire. And it spanned from the border of Egypt all the way north to Turkey, across Turkey, all the way east across Iran. And Persia basically is in the area of Iran today. That's about 2 million square miles. It's a huge, huge empire. I think they had 20 large provinces or countries within that empire. By the 5th century, it was the largest empire the world had ever seen, surpassing the size of even the Assyrian Empire. So why did Ezra find favor in the eyes of this great king? Well, in Ezra 7, we're told Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. How many of us today, how many of us get up thinking, you know, I'm going to study the word of God, I'm going to study the, the law and all that's written in the Gospels. Well, it's easy to imagine how blessed he must have felt. I mean, that's an important, great honor to have been given the honor of bringing God's word back to Jerusalem with the blessing of the Persian emperor. And he didn't go back empty-handed either. He was bearing treasures of silver and gold, sacred items for worship, supplied from the king's own treasury. He was given everything he needed to reestablish temple worship in Jerusalem, including the sacrifices of atonement. How great he must have felt. The covenant community would resume covenant worship of their covenant God in the covenant city. Even the small remnant that was left. Now remember, the Israelites, when they left Egypt, numbered about three million. Pretty good-sized group. By the time they left Babylon to go back to Jerusalem, only 50,000 were left. That's a 98% attrition rate. And what Ezra found when he got back, or when he returned to Jerusalem, shocked and horrified him. Instead of returning to Jerusalem from the captivity with thanksgiving to God and a desire to serve him, he was told that the people of God had taken a headlong freefall into the cesspool of sin. It wasn't the reception he was expecting, but it revealed what they really worshipped. And that quote on the, on the front cover of the bulletin from Spurgeon is so accurate. Whatever a man depends upon, whatever rules his mind, whatever governs his affections, whatever is the chief object of his delight is his God. You know, I, a lot of times I, in talking to guys, I'll just say, you know, what do you daydream about? What, what, what do you, what's, your, what's your greatest desire? What do, you really, what do you really think about when you have free time? Is it God? But in the case of the Israelites, they fell in love, not with God, but with pagan wives and the pagan idols that they had worshipped. So what was their sin? Marrying women outside the faith. And why is that so bad? Because God knows the power a woman can exercise over a man. 
You know, that's not PC today, but let's start with Adam. Did Eve have power over Adam? Exercise that. Samson, David, Solomon. How did these great men fall? The list is long of the men who let their biology trump their theology. And to be clear, this is not about interracial or interethnic marriage. How do we know that? Because God tells us in his word. One of the most beautiful romantic love stories in scripture is that of Ruth and Boaz. You remember what tribe Ruth came from? She was a Moabitess, right? The same tribe that we read in the beginning that practiced abominable sin. So she was from the tribe of Moab, one of the pagan tribes. But the difference was that Ruth was a believer. Remember her telling Naomi, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. So even though she was from a pagan tribe, she was a believer. And God blessed that marriage. And you remember Moses marrying a Cushite woman? It's kind of a curious story in scripture. Cush is a region south of Egypt in the area of Ethiopia and present-day Sudan. He married a black woman. You might remember Miriam, his sister, criticizing the marriage because of that. And as a result of speaking against her brother, Moses, God's great prophet, she was made a leper for seven days. It's almost like God was saying, if you want white skin, I'll give you white skin. Now, it wasn't about interracial marriage. It was about interfaith marriages, which God specifically condemned in Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many, all those nations to clear away, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. And this is why. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And isn't that exactly what happened to Solomon? The wisest man in human history? In 1 Kings... We're told that King Solomon loved, this is a, this is hard to imagine, but King Solomon loved many women, many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they'll turn your heart away after other gods. But Solomon clung to these women in love, and his wives turned away his heart, sure enough. You see, God wants, yes, God demands our hearts. So why did these Jewish men marry these pagan women? Well, maybe there's a shortage of Jewish women. It's possible, I don't know. And there's a good chance that some of them even divorced their Jewish wives to marry these Persian women. That's, that's an abomination. Or maybe they were women from wealthy Persian families. And maybe these were guys just trying to marry up, looking at that dowry. And to make matters even worse, Ezra was dealing with his leadership. Ezra was a Levite himself. But the priest and the Levites, relatives from his own tribe, his kin, modeled this sinfulness. In effect, they sanctioned it. After all, if the preacher does it, I can do it. Imagine that Artaxerxes, 
was more committed to seeing the word of God taught and followed in Judah than the leaders themselves, than the preachers and the pastors and the ministers and the elders. Isn't that a shame? So what did Ezra do? Well, he tore his clothes. He pulled the hair from his head and his beard. Any of you guys that have beards, if you ever pulled the hair from your beard, that's painful. But he pulled the hair from his beard and sat appalled, literally filled with dread and desolation because he knew what this meant. And when the people saw that, they trembled on hearing God's word. And shouldn't we also tremble and be filled with horror when God puts a spotlight on our own sin? Or is it the case that we become so immune, so inured to our own sin that it doesn't do anything to us? Well, beginning with verse 6, he prayed one of the great confessional prayers in all of Scripture. He said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and I blush. For our iniquities, our sins, have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has risen up from the heavens. Literally, we're swamped with our sin. We jumped into the cesspool and are drowning in it. And I'll just, I'll just say something right here. You know, when Joe was doing the confession of sin, you know, everyone bowed their heads and <clears throat> confessed their own sins. I started to, to think of sins and, in my own past and... Uh, I thought, man, th- there's a whole trove of sins that I need to confess, and uh, it, it kind of got to me. I'm, I'm glad that he cut that a little short because I could have gone on and on and confessing my own sins. Um, but that's, we're all kind of drowning in our sins, aren't we, to, to an extent? But did you notice what he didn't say? Well, Lord, those poor guys were just victims, they were victims of oppression. And cruel treatment, man, those Babylonians and Persians were mean. And they just did what everyone else was doing. And he didn't say that. And he didn't say, this commandment is really unfair. After all, men will be men. And those Persian women are beautiful. He didn't say that. And he didn't say, they just made a mistake. And you know, Lord, nobody's perfect. He didn't say that. No, Ezra identified with their guilt absolutely. He was a type or foreshadow of Christ himself. And in Romans, we read this. For our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. Now that's the closest identification with sin you'll see anywhere, is the identification that Christ, the sinless one, the righteous one, identified with sin. And how long has, had these sins been going on? How long had the people of Israel been in deep, deep sin? For a very long time. In verse 7, from the days of our fathers to this day, we've been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, <laughs> and our priests have been given into the hand of the killing, into the kings of the lands, to the sword to captivity, for plundering, and to utter shame as it, in, as it is today. Now, who is he talking about the fathers there? He's going all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The history of God's people is filled with idolatry. Now, did you notice that Ezra is confessing sins he did not commit himself? Can you confess someone else's sin? 
Well, Ezra prays as if the problem is his personal problem. He identifies with the people in their sin, and he sees the sin as a collective one. Now, a lot of this passage today, I was thinking, is, is for you, the members of this church, uh, both here and online, and for the new members. Uh, you've, joined a, you've joined a collective, a body, a group, and what hurts one of us hurts all of us. Have you ever felt the guilt of a family member who committed an open, visible sin? Have they experienced yours? Have you ever prayed asking God to forgive your children? Or your parents? Or your siblings? Or even your spouse? The confession of sin we practice weekly. It's for both individual and corporate sin. And there's a question that comes up pretty frequently, and that is, you know, Pastor... Why do we do this confession of sin? Aren't we forgiven? And the the response would be, yes, we're forgiven, but did you sin this past week? Or how did this week go? That usually ends that part of the discussion. But when there's sin in the camp, it needs to be confessed. And there's a huge difference in churches between the people who say they have a problem pointing fingers and those who say we have a problem. Because we're part of a church. We're part of a community of God's family. We confess our sins together for a reason. Even though we may personally not be guilty ourselves. Here's an example. I think it was five years ago at our General Assembly, which is our our PCA churches gather with presbyteries, which are regional, and then we have a national. And they meet quarterly, and we have a national General Assembly that meets once a year. And at the 44th General Assembly, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, which I love very much as a church, gathered and voted overwhelmingly to, quote, recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of corporate and historical sins, including those committed during the civil rights era and continuing racial sins of ourselves and our fathers, end quote. You know, it took way too long for that to happen, didn't it? This morning, we're not coming to God and pointing the finger at anybody but ourselves. This morning, we're hopefully coming to God in humility, like Ezra, instead of pointing the fingers at others. Well, Ezra knew what the penalty was. In verse 13, he knew what the people deserved. After, he, he writes, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds... And for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, destroyed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any escape? Well, Ezra knew that when you're guilty, the best thing to do is throw yourself at the mercy of the court. In verse 15, he he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today, just us. Behold, we're before you in our guilt. All we can plead is our guilt. (laughs) For none can stand you because of this. Is there anything that God doesn't know? About you? Does God know things about you that nobody else does? 
Well, Ezra knew that God was not just just, but merciful. So merciful that he would always forever maintain a remnant. And that word remnant, we don't use it a lot. It doesn't have necessarily the best connotation. The first thing I think of is the box of fabric pieces in Rhoda's sewing room. Um, remnants. Leftovers. But God's leftovers are his prize. We're his remnant people here today. Such as it is today. And, and to add, a, add some hope into this kind of <clears throat> sorrowful story, around the world today there are, are still remnants of Christ's bride that God mercifully preserves. Take a look at Europe for a second. France in particular, the birthplace of John Calvin. The recent numbers in France confirm a trend that has been increasing since the French Revolution. Today, only 4% of French people regularly attend church on Sundays. If the decrease continues, France might baptize its last baby by 2048. That's only 28 years. According to their social analysts, there's a process of growing de-Christianization in all of France and most of Europe. And unless, unless it camouflages itself with secular anti-Christian values, which is already happening. And that same godless Marxist ideology is sweeping across our own country. You can see it now. You can feel its tsunami coming. In truth, many of our institutions, even our churches, it's already arrived and it's at the helm. But God never leaves us or forsakes us. And even in France, there are rays of hope. God's preserving hope. One of the church leaders insists there that the faith is flourishing, and he said in his diocese he's seen a growth of 40% of adult baptisms in the last 10 years. So the remnant, even in post-Christian France, is being preserved. And today, I'm looking at God's remnant right now. A growing remnant. After all, in Boise, about 25% of Boiseans People in Treasure Valley identify as Christian. 75% of the people that surround us today do not identify as Christians. And about half of that 20% goes to church regularly. Less than 1% are Presbyterians. I just thought I'd throw that one out. <clears throat> Paul writes in Romans 11, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Amen? At the present time, there's a remnant Chosen by grace. And so we, we're here today only for one reason, and that's God's preserving eternal grace. And what preserves this remnant? True confession, which leads to revival. In verse 8, Ezra prays, But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant. And give us a secure hold within this holy place, his holy place. Why? So that God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in the slavery. Isn't that what we need today? A little reviving? Bringing life back into our relationship with God? A little Holy Spirit CPR? Spurgeon wrote this as well. If we want revivals, we must revive our reverence for the word of God. Amen. That's what we're doing right now, revering God's word. 
studying it together. So will we take advantage of that brief moment of favor that God gives us even today? Brother and sister, do you want to know how revival starts? Read verse 10 with me. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and even the children gathered to him out of Israel. You can just see this flock of people coming out to meet Ezra. And they wept bitterly also. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, saying this, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Isn't that a great passage? There's still hope. So repentance and confession precede revival. New members, old members, those of you watching online today, let's pray for revival. Let's pray for revival right now in our city, in our state, in our country, in our world. The C.S. Lewis quote on the cover is, is poignant. When a man's getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that's in him. When a man's getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. So as our own sins are acknowledged and confessed, the Spirit of God is poured out, and that's revival. That leads to restoration. That leads to making things new. When Martin Luther wrote his 95 Theses, the first thesis was, all of life is repentance. And if there's one thing that Ezra teaches us today, it's that the work of repentance and restoration is never done. Just when you think we're restored, another issue comes up that needs to be dealt with. Ask any pastor, ask any elder or deacon. There's always problems in God's church. This is not a perfect church. All the more the importance of repentance. But when we see how accepted and loved we are because of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the more often we'll repent. See, it's kind of a cyclical cycle, as a buddy of mine used to say. The more we see our own flaws and sins, the more electrifying and precious God's grace will appear to us. Like, it's like being recharged. God's grace will drive us to confess our sins, and our sins will drive us back to the beauty of God's grace found in Jesus Christ, his Son. Sin and its consequences are ugly. And the only cure for the depth of the ugliness of sin is the beauty of the cross. And isn't that beauty what we all want to experience today? Holy Spirit, revive us today. Amen.